0: insurance agents from around the world. Welcome to the Insurance Guys podcast powered by Glovebox. God, I love Glovebox. My name is Scott Howell, your fearless host and leader, insurance agency owner and insurance evangelist for iProtect Insurance and Financial Services based out of Huntsville, Alabama. And before we get started on today's episode, please help me welcome, he is a 6'3 sophomore from Mobile, Alabama. Parade first team All-American, rival five-star recruit, He is a fantastic insurance agent and a great American. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and welcome the incomparable Mr. Bradley Flowers. How are you, Bradley?
1: Great, Scott. How are you?
0: Best I've ever been. Beautiful day today. Bradley, I've got the Father's Day story to end all Father's Day stories. Would you like to hear it? I'm scared. You should be.
1: After last week's story, I don't know if you can top that.
0: Folks, I'm speaking directly to my son right now. Son, there is no chance in hell that you will listen to this podcast for at least 10 years. But one day, one day, he's going to go back through all of these podcasts and he's going to listen to them. And I want you, because you'll probably be in therapy by then and talking to your therapist about how awful your dad was and what a horrible (laughs) example he was and how he shaped your life in a way that caused you to be unsuccessful. I want to, I want to make sure he plays this in its entirety for his therapist. So he'll, the therapist will have some context. Sunday was Father's Day My son had gotten a letter from a coach at a community college over in Tuscaloosa now my there's a dual purpose to this okay my sister who he loves more than he loves me lives in Tuscaloosa he loves going over there and staying with her and my, all my nephews and and so he he wants to go to this baseball camp Shelton Shelton State Community College in Tuscaloosa somebody listening yeah. to this probably knows where they all is, the people who can't
1: is. get into Alabama go.
0: They have got a great head baseball coach. It is Unless you want to
1: play sports. Unless you want to play
0: sports. (laughs) It is mystifying to me how this guy is not the head coach at the University of Alabama because he's kind of a Nick Saban kind of guy. Got a great national program. Loves white. Sends white letters. Sends white Christmas cards. Handwritten Christmas cards. Some people would say that's recruiting. I don't know. Maybe he just likes my son. I have no idea. But he really wanted to go to this camp. So I load him up. We go remember it's father's day i'm my day Uh my day you just want to be left alone won't be left alone said it on twitter i just want to be left alone i got seven thousand people coming after me wanting my attention i just want to be left alone dad i need you to take me to tuscaloosa i want to go to this camp all week okay son that's what you want i'm here to support you get in the car kim goes with us my beautiful wife
1: i'm sure he told you at the last minute too
0: he is prone to do that yes my beautiful wife wanted to spend some time with me because here lately, it's just been so crazy. We hadn't had time to spend much time together. We drive to Tuscaloosa. I drop him off at my sister's house, spend about an hour with her and my cut co- my nephews, his cousins. We get ready to leave. And she said, hey, why don't you let me drive and you can take a nap on the way home? And I said, you know what? 99 times out of 100, I would say no. Today, I'm going to say yes. So she drives. I'm in the passenger seat. I sleep. From their driveway all the way up until we got about halfway home, about an hour. Happy Father's Day! <laughs> Happy Father's Day! We get to Trustful, Alabama, and I wake up and I thought, you know, I need to go to the bathroom. I need to go. I need to go. TT, but I don't want to stop. White, my son, therapist, take notes. My son has a Gatorade bottle sitting over here in the passenger seat of my door, and it's the one of the twenty ounce, like medium sized Gatorades, yellow. By the way. Yellow Gatorade, still about two inches of it in the bottle. It's
1: not a good start.
0: I urinate in the bottle, fill it up. Well, now it looks just like an orange Gatorade. I put it back in the, in the door of my vehicle and I go back to sleep for about 20 or 30 minutes. Well, we end up getting home and I'm cleaning out the car and I completely forgot that I did that. So as I'm cleaning out the car, I take the yellow Gatorade bottle out of the side door and I put it in my refrigerator, completely forgot what I did. About an hour goes by. I walk back in. I've been working out in the yard. As soon as we got home, I started working. Go back in the kitchen. Open Now, Kim is standing by the refrigerator when I do this. I open the door to the refrigerator, pull out the Gatorade. I take a swug of it. Now, folks, for y'all that don't know what a swug is, it's not a sip, but it's not a chug. But I have a mouth full of piss Gatorade right now. Is that a true story? Call my wife when we get off this podcast. She's standing right there when I did it. The first thing that ran through my head was, damn, this is a salty Gatorade. <laughs> and then in an instant, as I started to swallow it, I thought, oh my God, I peed in that Gatorade bottle on the way home. At least it spit, was it, spit it in the sink, looked at my wife and I said, well, I just drank piss, piss, just drank pee, threw it in the garbage, went on about my business because I didn't even want to think about it. That was my father's day. 2022 ladies and gentlemen congratulations scott (laughs) drank some pee on father's day okay your birthday's a lot better therapist y'all can focus on that for about three weeks (laughs) now okay let's do that let's do that bradley everything's going fine we have got an all-star guest today that i am so excited to have on this podcast he is a man that has accomplished a lot in his life i tell people all the time people We'll show you a resume of success. And this guy has a resume of success. This is our third installment. We started with, so you think you want to be an agency owner and run your own shop. Congratulations. We did that one. We did that one. Then we got a, an agent on here. I believe it was Jack. Was it Jack that we got on Jack, here? Jack Hurt. Part two, Jack Hart. Jack's running a big shop up there in Ohio. He did a great job. Proud to have him on board. today. We finished our third installment, and this is a man who's done a lot in his life, and he has a resume of, res- of success and continues to have success, and we're going to have our third installment. What do we want to call this, Bradley? I have no idea. We'll how, figure to it get out to the, how to get to the moon. There you go. There how you to go. get to the moon, because that's what every agent at some point in their life thinks they want to get to. They want to get to the moon and beyond. So here it goes, ladies and gentlemen. I want to give him the introduction. That he has always deserved. He is originally from San Antonio, Texas, and he currently resides in New York, New York. He is a graduate of Princeton University, earning a degree from the School of Public and International Affairs. I assume he could not get into Wallace State Community College in Coleman like I could. (laughs) That's probably why he had to go to Princeton. I wish I don't know anybody that's ever graduated from an Ivy League school. This guy is probably the first person I've ever met. He has over 20 years of experience in the insurance broker sector as a principal of the top 25 national insurance brokerage firm, Crystal and Company, where he served as executive vice president and CFO and was responsible for the firm's general and field operations. He was also responsible for leading the firm's award-winning private client business for a number of years. After leading the firm's acquisition in 2018, he left the acquiring company in 2020 to pursue his interests at the intersection of insurance and technology. Today, investing through Crystal Venture Partners. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my profound honor today to introduce to you first time guest on the IGP, Mr. Jonathan Crystal. How are you, Jonathan?
2: Thank you, Scott. Thank you for the really nice introduction, Bradley. Thank you for having me as well. You know, you you didn't say how I got into the insurance industry. That I assume would be like your first question off the bat. And I'd say it's a very traditional story, which is I'm a beneficiary of nepotism right? So there's only two stories in insurance. You either find some crazy story and lucked into it. Some guy met you in the street corner and said, you got to get into insurance or you, or you got an aunt, you got an uncle, you got a dad, you got a grandpa, somebody who says, come on, join us in the insurance brokerage industry. And uh, so I am that. Uh, I am the beneficiary of two generations ahead of me in the insurance industry. My grandfather started what was Frank Crystal and Company in 1933, My dad, Jim Crystal, joined him in 1960 when it was just my grandfather and him and a part-time assistant. My dad is a generational producer. He is at approaching 85, still very much an active producer is maybe at the top of his game, even at this stage. And when I joined uh, Frank Crystal in 2000, uh, it was probably about 200 people in four offices. And so uh, when I came into the business following my dad and, and my two brothers who had already preceded me, uh, this game was well into the middle innings and was very fortunate to be there for for the latter innings and, and, and take us pretty far along the way uh, to get to be a, a really great company.
0: Got a question. Sure. Yes, sir. Did you say 1932?
1: That's what I was about to ask.
0: 33. You. 33. 1932. Folks – 30, all of you, 1933, 33, thirty. My bad, 1933. That is amazing. What is it like working at an agency
1: that is older than most of the carriers that you represent?
0: Well,
2: fortunately, the world today is pretty different than the world that my grandfather went in was came into the business in. Yep. You know, I'm going to do like a little bit of a uh, you know, think back. My grandfather's in Wall Street. In the 1930s, in the heart of the Depression, there are literally hundreds of small insurance agencies in downtown New York and, frankly, around the United States. And think about what it was like to run an agency back then. You know, we think about how paper based this industry still is. Think about. Mm-hmm. when it really was paper and typewriters. And that was for a very, very long time. You had to hand deliver so, uh, your quotes to the underwriter and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of business that was done over, over you know, the bar and over, over lunch. Can you imagine was like dealing with London? Um, so this is a very, very different world. I think the fact that so many of the insurance companies that... That our firm outlived some really storied names, whether it was Kemper or Home and many others that, that sort of didn't make it along the way, is, is a testament to the durability of client relationships, of you know, treating people right and what it takes to really, you know, do right by people in an industry that that does change, but there's a lot of commonalities over even a, a three generations of business.
1: When when the agency started, what was their thing? Was it more general or was there like a Hey, you know, a lot of the early insurance carriers, it's, it was all farm, you know, that sort of thing. Was there a thing that they did?
2: Well, you know, I used to say all corporate histories written, written in retrospect, look like a straight line, Uh you know, from the bottom left to the top, right. And the reality is always pretty messy and pretty bumpy along the way. I think the best way to describe my, my grandfather, when he started the the business, he needed a job, right? It's the depression. He was a former stockbroker. My great grandfather uh, said, if you're going to be marrying my daughter, you better have a job and be doing something to take care of her. And he was in a position where he could direct him probably his first business. And and then um, that was still a day when you know you sort of networked and you did business with the people around you. My grandfather had some initial relationships with banks, right, New York Wall Street, and so that was his initial set of of customers who were were there. I'm not sure there was a lot of uh, focus at the beginning, right? You sort of uh, you know. Think of it as like when you go out fishing in a pond, you catch what you catch. It's like every Uh, agency
1: you start and you're like, we're going to do whatever we can do. Whoever gives us a
2: shot. Yep. And you take, you know, you you get your appointments where you can and you write what you can. Um, My father uh, really, you know, transformed the business. He came in, as I said, in the 60s, you know, his early 20s. But that was a generation. uh, It was the first period of time, as he describes it, when it was not necessarily the oldest guy in the room that was making decisions and the guys that he was hanging out with and whether it was playing poker or um, spending time with at night were kind of the first group of serious financial entrepreneurs in New York, what today would be called private equity back then, maybe uh, LBOs, you know, uh, corporate raiders, whatever you want to call it, buyout uh, guys, um, people like Carl Icahn, um, some of the, um, the, the premier you know, investors of the 60s, 70s were his friends. And as they continue to go up the ranks and, and develop their businesses, he, he grew as well. And and uh, because he is a, a world-class producer, he developed relationships all around the United States and built, um, started up um, you know remote offices in Houston. Uh, I think that was his first one. My mom was from Texas. So you mentioned that I grew up there and then ultimately Florida, California. And we expanded from
0: there. Jonathan, I have lots of questions. The mission of this podcast, largest, most listened to podcast, that is, you can't deny that in the insurance industry right here. I channel questions from agents from all over the country who are just like me, just like me. I've got two great questions I want to ask you, but before I do, I want to send a shout out to one of our podcast sponsors and one of our, you know, I guess you'd call them business partners that we have, Ascend for bringing you, helping us get you on this podcast today. That means a lot to me and it means a lot to Bradley. And I just want to say thank you to them for helping us get you on this podcast today because that relationship obviously helped for us to be sitting here today. Now, with that being said, first question I have for you. If you could tell our audience, what is the one lesson your grandfather gave you that to this day you think about every now and then that's really helped you out in business and in life? Doesn't matter. It could be personal, it could be business.
2: I didn't have the great fortune of getting to work alongside my grandfather. He passed right. when I was still a teenager. Oh man. And I hate
0: so, to hate that. Dang.
2: Yeah, no, thank you for saying that. And so you sort of, you know, you know, a, a grandparent as a kid, that's a certain sure. lens, you kind sure. of don't know him as an adult. And it wasn't until I was in the business, maybe 10 years. And I was talking to one of my colleagues who had actually worked alongside my grandfather. And that's one of the great benefits of being in a multi-generational businesses. I had colleagues who'd been there for 20, 30 years and had known me since I was a pipsqueak five-year-old and they had known my grandfather. And um, I remember uh, Robert was the guy who was telling me a story, just it's really a sense of humor, keeping a sense of humor about what you're doing. Um, And so he described it. He was And at the time, this is going back, you know, 20 years before I joined the business, the time he was working on uh, state licensing applications and, you know, filling out all the renewal applications, you know, and my grandfather evidently walked by him and said, you know, what are you doing? Why are you spending all this time? He said, well, you know, all these forms are so cumbersome at the time. He's probably filling them out by hand. He said, no, no, no. Just fill in your name, your address and a couple of other pieces of information and then send it in and they'll come back to you with the other pieces they really need for you to complete right. your application. And um, so evidently my father comes in one day, he goes, Robert, why are we getting all these kickback notices from all the state, you know, the states about our insurance applications? Like, why can't you do this right? Look I heard that 20 years later and right. I just started laughing out loud because you could imagine one, you know the difference of perspective that comes from my grandfather and my dad sure. uh, and imagining what that's like and I had my own you know funny interactions with my dad. But also like this is a very serious business that what we do here. Um, you know we're in a trusted position and taking care of people, making sure that at the worst moments of their lives we're there for them. But it's also business. And it's also personal. It's also about your colleagues. And if you don't kind of have a sense of humor, have some fun with it, then, you know, it's going to be a grind and you're probably not going to make it for, you know, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, whatever it may be.
0: So, and I hope you don't mind sharing this. You were an integral part of the transition in 2018 when you guys uh, sold the agency. Do you mind sharing with these agents just from a contextual standpoint? where you guys were at at that time, premium wise, at around the time when you guys were getting ready to sell? Geez. Um, There's a question behind that. And you can ballpark it. It, it does. Yeah, the, no, no,
2: no. I, I'll, I'll answer the question, but you're sort of picking a moment in time. So Uh, when we were acquired in 2018, we were 450 people, 11 offices, north of 150 million in revenues. We generally like to talk about revenues more than premium. Uh, you know, you can do the multiples on it, uh, but we had a mix of property and casualty about 80% of our business is property and and casualty. The balance was employee benefits. Right. And we were kind of known as a specialty business with, uh, core capabilities in financial institutions, private equity, management liability, high net worth private clients, and, and a wide array of, of capabilities. So we were a sophisticated firm, large firm, top 25. And it's not that someone, you know, I I got asked one day uh, shortly after we announced our transaction to just someone roll in with a, you know, a, a bag of money and, and and make an offer you couldn't refuse. And you know, I kind of laughed and took a little umbrage to that because I, it didn't reflect the amount of real deep thought and consideration that went into the future of our firm. Right. Um, and it took us, we started thinking in, in 2016 about the long-term sort of needs of our company. So we had built this a hundred percent on our backs of our family. We were hundred percent privately owned and we had built it all organically. We had some small acquisitions and tuck-ins, but we had we built this thing the hard way, which is all through through organic growth and bringing producers and developing our capabilities. And by in sort of 2016, we looked around and we saw a couple of things going, going on that, that I think are still relevant today. One, which is the continued consolidation of the industry and sort of the, the valuations uh, implied by that and in the, the leverage of being employed by acquirers. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was uh, sort of the, the technology and, and how that was changing our industry and really what was going to be required to be relevant to our customers going forward. We we went through a really deep process of evaluating kind of our, our strengths and capabilities. And one of the things we concluded was, shoot, we needed to get bigger. Even at, at the size that, that I described to you there, we right. felt that um, size long-term mattered uh, in terms of being, you know, able to invest in some of the capabilities we'd want to have to be in data. And we thought we'd take in private equity money and, and be, you know, another of the sort of acquirers and platforms that are out there. And there's some great ones then. There's some great ones now. We ended up making the decision to partner with Alliant, which was back to Stone Point Capital, a private equity firm that we knew and respected highly. We didn't know much about Alliant when we sort of went through the process of, of talking to them. Uh, we're not committed to, to an acquisition at that point. But when you sort of put the puzzle pieces together and lined up two firms, one was West Coast-based, one was East Coast-based, both believed in specialization. And most importantly, both firms firmly believed in producers, that great producers are the key to, to growing um, mm. your business. And uh, it just kind of made sense. And, and then uh, it took us a while to put the deal together and make it happen. But that's kind of, in a nutshell, a right. two-year story that sounds like, you know, a straight line, and I promise you, even that wasn't right. a straight line. Sure. But we got from you know point A to point Z, and I won't tell you all the the letters in between we hit.
0: So I want to say how much I appreciate you sharing that context with our audience about size, growth, the things that you just talked about. I don't want to repeat what you just said, but that brings me to my next question. You talk about coming in at, in the middle innings, and listen, nobody understands better than I do. It takes a village takes an army of great people to be able to do what your firm was able to do. And I know your dad, your brothers, a lot of great men and women worked in that firm to get it to the point to where you guys were able to get it to. I completely understand that. Kudos to you guys for that. When you came in in the middle innings, again, we're speaking to these agents out here. And I hear this quite often. What were some things when you came in in the middle innings, we'll say, that you felt like after kind of getting your feet on the ground and, and understanding the business a little better, of course you'd have to be there for a while for this to happen, what were some things that you felt like needed to change to continue that growth trajectory to get to where you guys wanted to be?
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a couple of things that, that, uh, that were needed to change and that we did change. I'd say first is kind of organization. So when you're an agency, really of most size, you don't need to have a lot of organizational structure. You know, management ends up being wasted time, energy, and talent, and isn't really respected by producers and professionals. Uh, And even when I came into our firm in 2000, and was well-established in a sizable firm. I think you could describe our org chart as closer to a spider web than, than a traditional org chart. And you know, you could describe it as entrepreneurial, but that also meant that it lacked some clarity sometimes around decision-making, uh, some informality around when and where decisions were made. It wasn't always transparent to uh, you know, our colleagues how, you know, where we were going. It was kind of like, well, we're going where we want to go today, especially in a family-owned business. And then we didn't always make the best choices or because you were sort of responding to the problem of the day. And so I'll, I'll get into it. So what that ended up being is uh, we brought in some professional management and really clarified reporting lines. And the most important thing that came out of that, uh, and it took years to develop, was a professional culture. And so, you know, when you're in a agency environment with not a lot of structure around you. And if you got 10 people, 50 people, even hundred people, you can manage culture a lot through kind of informal mechanisms. You know, a lot of the kind of like, Hey, you know, that's not the way we do things here kind of approach. Same same with training. You can do it a lot by just like, Hey, come here, sit in on this meeting and we'll talk about things. As you start to get from hundred to 200 people, 200 to 300, 500, whatever the number is. You need to be much more intentional about the culture you're creating and the culture Mm. you're sustaining. And it can't be just one, two, three, five people at the top who. Are responsible for owning the culture. Everybody's got to understand it and own it. So that's number one is, is thinking about culture and organization. And there's some deeper things that ultimately came into play about how you sustain and grow that. The second was, I'd say, largely around technology, data, information. But in 2000, right, I want to situate in when I came in and, and I was a young guy and it's a very different world. But in 2000, my first impression when I came into the business and I, Uh, I was the black sheep in my family, by the way. So my two older brothers had both started their careers in insurance underwriting. One had done the uh, Chubb underwriting program, a casualty underwriting program. Another had been at Lloyd's and then gone to AIG and National Union professional lines sterling experiences in insurance. I decided to go a very different route into management consulting and came in as like a, you know, as you described, I'd be like way overeducated and super arrogant uh, young guy coming to my family's insurance agency. And my first impression when I walked around, was like, why is there so much paper? Like every desk had piles of files. Like I, I think a lot of agencies today have moved on from that, but there's still plenty of agencies that you see that have just paper everywhere coming out of their ears. Yep. And so my first impression was like paper files. Like that doesn't seem very 21st century.
1: How big is the file room at a 150 million revenue? Agency? Well, it wasn't, it was 30
2: million at the time. So oh, it was a very, still- very different place, but same kind of deal. You know um, it was, you know, Foul
1: bigger than my
0: office. Oh, absolutely.
2: Well, I'll, I'll digress on that for a second. When we moved, so we only had three headquarters in our 85 years history of, of uh, Frank Crystal and Company 61 Broadway, 40 Broad Street, and 32 Old Slip. We were at 61 Broadway for 50 years and moved us to and then we were 40 Broad Street for 25 years and the balance at 32 Old Slip. When we moved from for, uh, 40 Broad Street to 32 Old Slip, my, my head of, of office services at the time said, you know, we only have enough file space for like a couple of years. And we just signed a 15-year lease. I said, Robert, you're going to see in three or four years, we will have tons of empty file cabinets. And we managed to do that. So we had done a, a full document imaging process along the way. So I, I mentioned technology data, paper. Uh, but really understanding data and information. So I also came in, as I said, 2000, and I'm going to paint a picture of a very different world uh, we had used Sajeda. That was our agency management system at the time. It actually was for a long time. And I said to- Shout out uh, to Frank RIT, yeah, yeah, very different uh, Vertifor at the time, very different yeah. Sejita, but I said, hey guys, can we extract some data from our, our agency management system? And so I can do things like look at books of business and understand profitability they said, well, you know, we only have canned reports or we can print to paper. Those were the what? only two ways at the time that you could get data out of Sajita. So uh, I literally figured out how to code and write software to get information out of Sajita into, you know, a database so we could sort it and scrub it and figure it out our data was absolute shit. It was terrible mess And it took me two years to get our data cleaned up, just in a place where we could understand how to run our business. So you asked me the question, what needed to change? Those are, you know, organization and really culture. And the second was how we used um, technology and information.
0: Sure.
1: Talk a little bit about, I know we really just touched on it, but, you know, Scott and I spoke a couple of weeks ago on the series about how like, you know, everybody thinks, you know, back to the straight line thing, right? Everybody thinks they're going to start an agency. This, this is the way we're going to do it. It's always going to be this way. And we're just going to grow and we're going to get to a million in revenue and 20 million in revenue and so on. And we're always going to do it this way. But what you don't realize is the things that were easy when you started, the things when you're at scratch that are easy are hard when you're at 600,000 in revenue. And the things that are easy when you're at 600,000 in revenue are hard when you're at a million and so forth. Talk a little bit about some of the, I guess, the issues that you would run into of an agency of that size on a day-to-day basis that you wouldn't necessarily run
2: into if you're smaller or larger. So I think a way to think about this is like a step function. Like think of going up the stairs. So once again, when you think about growing a business, people think, oh, it's just a straight line or a curve, hockey stick, however you want to think about it, whatever financial projections you want to grow. A better way to think of it is a step. You're going up a step. And sometimes you sort of, the business is pretty much the same, right? We got a handful of producers. We got a handful of clients. Maybe we need to bring in an extra CSR. Maybe we need to bring in something that is uh, going to help us grow the business. But then you got to take a step up. Oh, geez, I need some, a loss control engineer. Or I need a claim, dedicated claims person, or I need someone who's a specialist in, in marketing or sales management, whatever counting. you need accounting, so whatever the infrastructure you might need. And it kind of every incremental step of an of agency, there's this, oh gosh, I now need to take a step back and see, make an investment or series of investments in order to make it to the, to the next stage. And so I kind of alluded to that when you make that move from being a you know kind of personality-driven, close-knit group of producers, Uh, you know, that are just, hey, it's all about taking care of clients, winning business, keeping business, taking care of people, kind of that old-fashioned style, no matter how you're operating on a day-to-day basis, that sort of old-fashioned style of just take care of clients and and the business will take care of you, actually starts to break down into a certain size. And as I alluded to that, it's probably around 200 people, 150 to 200 people. There's some actual studies around um, that that the human mind really can't grapple with more than 150 relationships. Mm. And so once you get beyond that size, uh, if you're, you might be a great manager, leader, executive, whatever you want to call it, where you know everybody's name, manage by walking around. But once you've got multiple locations, multiple geographies, multiple product lines, uh, and you've got uh, multiple sort of organizational kind of managerial levels, the way you conduct yourself as an organization is different right? It's about policies. It's about structure. It's about information. And the thing that I think is the hardest to engineer is, is really, I alluded to culture, but really communication. How do you talk in a way that is different when not everybody needs to know about everything, but everybody does need to know about some things. Where are we going? What are we trying to accomplish? What are the key issues? And things that, that you may not think about, compliance, accounting controls, EO prevention, You know, long keeping a business around for the long term is sometimes less about the growth and success part than avoiding the fatal errors. Mm -hmm. I talk to my kids a lot about that. Like, you know, it's okay to have painful errors. You know, Scott, you started out the, uh, the the story. I'm pretty sure you're going to be careful with your Gatorade bottles from now on. Exactly. I don't expect that's going to happen again. That's uh-huh. a painful but not a mortal uh, error. But the you know the mortal ones are the ones that you don't survive. So fortunately, that wasn't strychnine uh, or rat poison, and that might have been your last father. Or
1: freeze. Right. Kim's trying right. to yeah. poison you. Right.
2: Exactly. So we're. So I think that's another thing that you start to think about more when it's not just on your back or your balance sheet, when you've got, maybe you've taken on loans, maybe you're taking on loans in order to acquire other businesses. Uh, People are making choices with their lives and their careers to join your business, to leave some other successful business to come to yours. You know, all of a sudden that, that responsibility It really weighs on you. And I think that the sense of your role, and I'm going to frame it in terms of being an executive or owner, your role is very much less about telling people what to do or, you know, kind of leading from the front than shifting a little bit more to leading from the back and making sure they have the resources, the capabilities, environment to be successful. And that's a hard shift to make as an individual. uh, And I think that's a hard shift to make as an organization. Well,
1: what happens too, when you have that kind of flat culture like that, not only is your day, in my mind, where I'm trying to get as a manager of, of nine people right now is how do I put things in place, whether it's people or processes or meetings or whatever, to keep my day from being reactionary? Because if one person brings you three issues every single day, you multiply that times however many people you have, and then it's going to compound upon itself. And you're just sitting there like you feel like somebody's got one of those like tennis ball or, or uh, a pitching machine stuff shooting baseballs at you, boom, boom, boom. How can I go from that to I'm only having to catch a couple? You know what I mean? How can we be proactive, not reactive? And I think not only do you have that side of it, but I also think it's very confusing for your team and your employees when you don't have those culture and management structures in place because either they A, don't know who to go to when they have an issue or B, the person that they're supposed to go to when they have an issue is so freaking busy that they feel like they're either a interrupting their day or they can't get a word in edgewise. And we've run into that in our office and we're taking steps to so I, I don't even think it happens
2: at the smaller levels too. Something you just said reminded me the hardest balance to keep is the balance between taking care of the business and taking care of the people. Right. right? So when it's you've got nine people, you said, you know, all of them you know, their strengths, their weaknesses, you know what they're doing on the weekends, you know what they're doing, you know, what's going on in their lives. And I suspect you really care about them. Yeah. that. And that's a sign of a good leader. At the same time, you got to keep in the back of your head, I've got to make decisions for the benefit of this business. Yep. And if I don't ca- take care of this business, then we're not going to be around to help to take care of them. Nobody's going to have care- a job. Correct. And so you can imagine is that business starts to get larger. You have more people, you've got more responsibilities more of your time and energy is about taking care of the business than taking care of the people. It doesn't mean you care. In fact, you probably care much more, but the sort of taking care of the business becomes the critical venture involved in and how you spend your time and getting people to understand, look, I know and care about you, but you know, you've got a job to do and I've got my job to do. And here's how we're going to spend our time to address what your needs are. And if you can't address this, for example, you know, on your own, then we got to figure out is it an issue of us or is it an issue of you? I, well, let's just say I'm a, a calmer, gentler Jonathan Crystal than I was uh, early in my management days. I'm never sure. I'm not sure I was like ever a truly great manager, but uh, I, I definitely had a little bit of an edge to me uh, when I was younger and probably didn't know quite as much what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I used to say, look, you know, if you had two people who were let's say they had a disagreement or they couldn't kind of get along together. So look, here's the thing. You two can bring me your problem and I I will solve it for you, but I promise you it'll be much, much more painful than if the two of you were to solve it together. So I'm going to ask you to, if you want to go back in the sandbox and try to solve it yourselves, because if you can't, I will answer this, but I can promise you won't necessarily be happy with the, the outcome that comes from it. And that ultimately is the role as you get larger is just you know, making key decisions, but also trying to preserve that point, which is like not every decision rolls up to me. You all need to be responsible and accountable for performance results and making decisions that are appropriate for for where you sit in the organization.
1: Well, and what happens too, so like I have an eight-year-old and she, let's say she wants a a glass of apple juice. Okay. If I'm occupied and I'm there, but I'm occupied, she's going to go make it herself. But if she sees that I'm I'm not occupied, she's going to ask me to do it for her and not to compare my team to eight-year-olds. But but you run into that. No offense to any of you guys that are listening. I know you listen. You, you run into that because such and such is here. I'm going to get their thoughts on it when I could really solve this problem myself. And we've actually gotten to a really good place in our company where people, I, I, we had a meeting about two months ago and I said, look, and, and we added a few new people. And anytime you add new people, there's this level of anxiety I pick up on where people are scared to make decisions because we're pretty open and we're not like a lot of the agencies around here where people are, are demonized if they make one small non-fatal error. And I, I told them, I said, guys, you know, I want to create a culture of free decision-making. I don't want you to not make a decision because you're scared of the outcome. Make the correct decision. You will know when it's something that you need to get me involved in. You will know. And and that's helped us out a lot. We've reiterated that a couple of times, but you run into that. I bet you run into that times a thousand when you have as many people as you guys have, where people are just, everybody's kind of like, you know, you have each person's like, well, I'm going to get Jonathan's input on this today. That won't take too much of his time. It'll take 30 seconds, but they don't realize you have 40 other people asking you the same thing or or not the same thing, but asking you their, their, your input
2: for their thing, you know? Well, let me give you the worst example. You, You might not be there yet, but you're probably close to it. Well, Jonathan thinks we should do this, or mm-hmm. I bet Jonathan would want us to do this. All of a sudden, you become like the boogeyman, as opposed to you know a real or you know Bradley. You know thinks we should do this. All of a sudden, you got kind of get thrown in the room, even though you're not it's there. the bad guy. Yeah. And and decisions are made kind of like like I wouldn't have made that decision, or I wouldn't have come to that. Or I wouldn't have handled things quite that way. And so being really intentional around that and. And, um, you know, clarifying what your your authority is. Look, another thing, you you know, Scott, you asked about kind of what changes as you get larger. Here's the thing. As large organizations are inherently much more specialized. We were acquired by a large organization, Alliant, a spectacular organization and nothing but positive say, uh, things to say about Alliant. Um, had a tremendous experience there. But it was immediately apparent to me as someone joining that organization how many additional levels. so they were, you know, another 10 times the size, more than 10 times the size of crystal immediately apparent to me how many additional levels of specialization come into play. And so, you know, you may be, you know, Bradley, I'm going to pick on you. You're, you're an agency principal, you know, you sort of, you've got your cook, cleaner, bottle washer, you probably do everything, produce, you kind of manage, you keep the books, everything that comes into play when, when you're an owner, but you're going to hit a point you're like, I'm not the best person to do this. And there, it's actually the larger you get, you realize you're, you're probably the worst person to do mm-hmm. almost everything. Um, and therefore, your role starts to shift. You're carrying the flag for your firm. You're out there in the community talking up the story. You're recruiting. You're helping people work through challenging issues. You're spending time with clients. The amount of time I spent with what I call save operations, right? Challenging client situations where you had to go in and say, we really screwed up. And we're going to own that. And we're going to talk about how we're going to handle things differently in the future or what we need to do to re-earn your trust. It's not a lot of fun to do that. I didn't really love uh, that aspect of the job, but it becomes part of the role. In my case, my, my name was on the door, but I think any agency principal, you know, has to be the chief, you know, crow eater if that's part of the role. So it, the nature of the job starts to shift from like the doing part to kind of the seeing that things get done and then kind of the execution side. And certainly at a, at, you know, these, massive massive multi-billion dollar uh, organization it's a whole nother level than even we were at crystal and company
1: well it's one of those yep. things too so not to be like the typical guy from alabama but bear bryant the famous coach at the university of alabama was interviewing head uh, assistant coaches for a position i don't know if you heard the story scott and uh he told a reporter he needed he let's say it was a wide receivers coach he needed this wide receivers coach to be better at being a wide receivers coach than him and they said why is that And he said well if if I'm better at it than they are, why do I need them? And I think it's important. Like all of my people are better at what they do than than I would be at doing their job. And I've I, I'm not producing anymore. Uh, I am doing a lot of the other things you said. And I've even just as a kind of funny anecdote used a practical application of this because one of the issues we'd run into is as we've created buzz in the community, I've had people that I personally know or am related to do business with us. And I'm guilty of this as a customer with other companies. You don't want to talk to the person at the front desk. You want to call, I know the owner, I'll call him. And we were running into these situations where people would call me for service on my cell phone, but I would, yeah, I'm busy. I didn't answer whatever. And next thing I know, they're telling my wife at at a family reunion, I called Bradley's office. And nobody answered. No, Brenda, you called my cell phone. You didn't follow the process. And so I actually in my voicemail, it says, if you're calling for service to get a quote or file a claim, please hang up. And it, it, it tells them where to go. And I follow that with, I'm literally the worst person that can help you with this. I have a team of people at the office who are experts in whatever you need. I've got an expert for it. The worst way to do business with Portal is to demand to do business with me. So I just lay it out there. Uh, but it's it's interesting. One theory I have, or not theory, one observation is I think it's easy for an entrepreneur or a business owner To outsource or delegate the things because eventually you have to replace yourself. It's easier for them to outsource or delegate the things that they don't want to do or the things they're not good at. Where I think it gets interesting is when there's something they like doing, but they're not good at. Are they, you see what I'm saying? And they have to come to the realization and have the self-awareness. Hey, it's better for this organization for me to let Jonathan do this or Sally do this or Brenda do this or hire this out than myself doing that. And I think well, that's a that's an interesting hump for some people to get over.
2: I think that's there's a point where you got to decide if you're running a business or not.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I see marketing is a one. lot.
2: There are a lot of great agencies out there that are taking care of families, taking care of a lot of employees, taking care of customers, and there, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're creating a business and building a business, that is a very different matter. You can't scale. You can't scale. Uh, you got to make choices. Uh, sometimes those choices are hard. Uh, you may be making choices about exiting business, shutting down offices, terminating employees these are where the buck stops is, is at the top and, and the person who owns the agency. And that didn't change even in a firm our size. We, you know, socialized some of that decision-making uh, considerably, but um, you could point to things and say, look, if we don't have sustainable margin, we don't have sustainable cash flow then we're not going to be in a position to continue to invest back in the business, grow this business and continue to create opportunities for growth for our employees, be relevant for our customers long-term. And to be able to say that, to people when you're making hard choices and they say, well, how come I can't get a raise? How come, you know, I uh uh, you know, you're not promoting me? How come, you know, I, I want more commission, whatever the, the decision that for them really is critically important, and to say, no, but I hear you and I understand why that's important to you. But at the same time, we are making choices around the business. And if that means you're gonna make a choice, right, to, to go to another firm. Or, um, you know, we understand that and, and you know, you can do that if you choose to do so. And those are, you know, I, I talked about the personal and the people, like it's a tough balance, right? To say, I hear you and I believe, you know, I care about you, but yep, I'm here also to take care of the business. And some people are just not cut out to make that transition to running a business.
0: Mm-hmm. Hey, Bradley, I want you to answer this okay. along with Jonathan. One thing I've noticed As an agency owner whose agency has grown exponentially, especially since we've been independent, when you're working on the business instead of in the business every single day, I have noticed, especially lately, and maybe some of this comes with maybe wisdom and just uh, being in it for as long as I've been in it now, it does become glaringly obvious to me when you do need to hire in one of these areas of specialization, whether it's accounting, whether it's human resources, whatever it is, there comes that point where you're like, I need to hire somebody that's an expert in this to come in and work in this area. I would say that is a good thing. That eventually, you know, because when you start, like it's hard. Said it's earlier, hard to
1: see that though when you're in it every day.
0: Correct. Correct. If you're writing business and cleaning toilets and doing the QuickBooks, and you know you're you're starting out. It, that's almost, it's almost like you can't see the forest for the trees, but when you back up and you start working on the business every day and letting your people, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and you've hired great people and you're working more on the business. It seems to me anyway, and I'm, I'm a big self-awareness guy. I'm, you know, I can tell you, I could talk for an hour about what I'm not good at, but it's, it's glaringly obvious to me when we need to make a hire and a specialization. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good thing for agency owners out there. Jonathan, let's talk to these agents for just a minute before we get off this podcast, okay? Before we do, I had one other question for you. You had a lot of roles in your previous agency life. What was your favorite of all the things you did? And there was a lot of different roles you had. What was your favorite? I'm surprised to say
2: this now because remember, I started out as kind of a pencil neck Ivy League guy coming to the industry, but I, I actually love being a producer and, and the specific part of it was was solving problems uh, for clients and being there for them when they you know were, were trying to crack a really challenging problem. They wanted to launch a new business. They wanted to grow, and I could come up with a creative solution to that and uh, and work with you know my colleagues and who are specialists and, and to bring that solution to the table and have that gratification that comes when someone says, wow, you did something that no one else, I, I thought couldn't be done or that no one else could do for me. And, and I think like, I really believe in the insurance industry. I think that the role of the producer is critical. Uh, you know, we can talk more about that in a different context, but you know, at the heart of it, we're deeply understanding what's going on with our customers, what's going on in their business and their life in bringing solutions to the table to protect them. And when you have that deep care and concern with what's going on uh, in their lives and have the ability to bring something special to the table, like, yeah, I'm not saying, yeah, I quoted somebody's auto insurance. That, uh, that's not what gets me. Or even the biggest tickets, it really was a situation when someone said, wow, like I came to you with something I didn't think could be done and you managed to solve that uh, for me. And, and I do miss that to some extent, but I um, have been able to find other ways to scratch that particular itch.
1: My team knows the one way to get me involved in a deal because I just let them do their thing. The one way to get me involved is to come to me with a puzzle. Yeah, a lot and of I'm, critical things. I jump head first. I want to solve that problem. Yeah. Or I'm the most competitive person I know. It's a situation where we're going up against a competitor I'm not fond of. One of yeah. those two, both of those <laughs> two. Yeah.
2: Creativity yeah, what, and winning, right? Yeah. You know, are the the two things that are great.
0: That tells me you've got a lot of critical thinking skills, Jonathan. To be able to—that's the part that you enjoyed. Well, if you enjoy that, and I've I've got some agents in my office that are that way, and it's a high level of critical thinking skills to be able to solve those problems. Bradley, same with you. Yeah.
1: What do you think, Jonathan? So going back to your grandfather, I, I wanted to ask this at the beginning, but I decided to, to to leave it. What year did he did he retire from the agency or pass?
2: He was going into the office into his 80s. He passed in about the early 90s. So, um, so if he saw, you know, we all we've all seen these memes where it's like
1: some somebody in the 50s predicted that we would have flying cars in 2020, and obviously we don't have flying cars. If he could come back and see the state of the insurance industry now, whether it's carriers, technology, whatever, do you think he would be shocked? in amazement or shocked in, I can't believe this is where we are and we're not further down the rabbit hole.
2: Very much the latter. I think he would laugh and say like, this is the same stuff. Yeah. We're still solving the same set of problems. You know, I remember I found a letter once from him in 1948. Gosh, I wish I'd, I kept it. I don't know where I, I went and I kind of got lost, but it's from 1948. There's was a letter to like a state regulator that said, you know, I don't understand why we don't have uh, reciprocal licensing, uh, you know, across uh, different states. You know, that's 1948. And here, you know, we're still dealing with issues of, of licensing. And, yep. you know, so uh, he, he also believed, as my dad and, and frankly, I believe as well, that, um, you know, relationships at the top of insurance companies really do matter. And being able to get things done, whether it's on the underwriting side or the claim side, yep, I don't think that's changed a lot. Uh, and he'd say, you know, um, looks in some cases the same family names are at the top. So it is, uh, it is an interesting thing to watch that, you know, where there has been a lot of changes at the transactional level and how, you know, uh, and the pace probably at which things are done but, uh, you know, fine. That we can get a binder issued electronically, great. We can get an invoice issued and sent via email or even better yet, if, uh, you know, Ascend can, can present, you know, uh, an invoice electronically and get it paid simultaneously. That's considered, you know, innovative and groundbreaking in our industry. I, I think you would recognize those things. Those are not things that are new and different. Where I think we're moving towards, though, is, and this is why I'm kind of excited about the future of the industry and kind of the choices I've, I've made to go into the kind of technology forward side of the industry is we're at the precipice of real change, right? We're at a moment when people can fundamentally change the way they're doing doing business and the kind of products and services that we can offer our clients. Um, and not only are the precipice of being able to do that, God, the world needs us to do that. Right. You know, I don't think he would uh, recognize social media. I don't think he would recognize, I mean, look, the fact that we're doing this all through Zoom and, and, uh, and doing a podcast, that will probably get listened to on someone's commute uh, on the way to the office. Like this is a very different world and uh, that, you know, we, we should be pushing ourselves as an industry to, to make sure we're relevant uh, and bring the right tools and capabilities to, to, to our clients.
0: So you're a smart guy. I mean, I can tell that just talking to you. And as as I said in your introduction, you're kind of at that intersection of insurance and technology. What's the insurance industry going to be like for agents like Bradley and I? If if I was to ask you that question, what do you think it looks like for us ten years from now?
2: Well, I'm going to ask for forgiveness and say let's let's not focus on the ten years from now. Let's just say the future, right? Like sure, future. That's fine. Know, yeah. Near, near, but far future, right? right. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll be wrong on timeframes, but we can sort of look at the direction on it, and that's far enough out there. You know, part of me wants to say to look pretty much the same because this industry moves very, very slowly, right? Like my grandfather would still recognize a lot of what we, we do here. But I think the trend lines point in a couple of different directions, right? So, if you look at any industry that's in sales, professional services, here's what's happening: bigger, getting bigger. The top salespeople are getting a bigger piece of the pie. Mm. And uh, they're accomplishing that, getting a bigger piece of the pie by using technology and information to acquire customers, retain customers, and to do so productively and profitably. And uh, so I'll, I'll just bring that back for a second into that bigger piece of the pie aside, because there's both threat and opportunity that for, for your listeners around this. You know, in most agency environments, you say to somebody, wow, you produced 100,000 new new last year. And you say, can you do 200,000 new? Well, you know that's going to be, I don't know if I can double that. Can you do 400,000 new new next year? Can you do a million new new? Now, when I was at Crystal and I was CFO and I had a couple hundred people reporting to me, I was still producing a million new new each and every year, but by getting right leverage, technical leverage and, and other kind of network relationship uh, leverage. But I think the best producers are going to be able to use technology to be able to get more leverage and not necessarily be a hundred thousand new or a million new, but they will be like 10 million and hundred million new, mm. right? Because that's what happens in financial services. That's what happens in real estate is the period, the pyramid starts to get a little bit more slanted. So if you're at the top of that pyramid, that's awesome, right? Because you're going to capture more of the pie. But if uh, I think there are a lot of agencies out there that are not specialized, that are in lines of coverage that are commoditized and are going into more <clears throat> the transactional environment for standard personal lines, for small commercial lines. It's getting you know, more of the interface with the technology. And your friends at Clubbox like to talk about how to, to make sure to, to keep that relationship there. And uh, so uh, if when we look out, I think you're going to see this, you know, movement towards not only the top producers getting a bigger piece of the pie, but then financially grabbing a bigger piece of the pie as well, where the producer splits start to shift over time. So, and then then pushing another angle, which is specialization and deep technical knowledge start to really matter. Uh, You know, where I hope for this industry, the part that we talked about, like what I enjoyed the most, let's call it advisory consulting, you know, the parts where we feel like we're real professionals. I, I don't think most of us can in the insurance industry to sort of pound on a keyboard um, and sort of do data entry or do processing or to do submissions or all the things that sort of occupy 80 to 90% of the activity in an agency. Maybe it's more. And so as those things hopefully get more automated and, and turn into more services and capabilities. So like uh, SimC is an example of a, a firm that uh, I'm an advisor to where they you know, help small agencies play small commercial business with a single entry platform. So they can go in and they can get multiple quotes and that can save 30 minutes to an hour for every quote. You multiply that by the number of quotes that you're going out there. You're getting a better product. You're getting a better service to your customer and you're saving time and energy. Sort of multiply that out by by capabilities. And I think the role of risk advisor starts to shift uh, a bit as well. Um, Another company that I work with is is, um, TrustLayer which does automated verification of certificates of insurance. And so, you know, another thing that my grandfather would be laughing about, and I would be too, is that we still got these damn pieces of paper called certificates of insurance running around and that we're reliant on them. And that in an age when I never, you know, have to worry about whether my credit card is, uh, you know, a valid credit card, that our insured still have to, you know, don't have a way of verifying that their insurance isn't enforced at any given time. And so a trust lawyer is another one that's doing, you know, kind of pushing the envelope and helping people think about what's the role of brokers uh, and the agents and, and helping make sure that, you know, there's those who are depending on others' insurance can rely on that. And so, you, you know, just to close the loop around this question of what's the agent in the future going to look like, you know, bringing different capabilities, specialty capabilities to table, bringing, using technology to provide advice and, and, and over kind of a bigger range of, of customers and um, being much more sort of in the data stream, in the slipstream with their customers. So they're not constantly asking them for, hey, can you tell me who your drivers are? Can Did you add a location? Did you, uh, you know, did who's, uh, you know, did you add or delete a vehicle where too much of the transactional stuff uh, is kind of holding us back?
0: Hmm. Scott's Love it. taking notes. I am taking notes. I always take notes. Yeah. I've got one more question for you, and I'll let you go. Tell almost lunchtime. Exactly. Every agent in America has always had this romantic notion of one day being a $100 million agency. I, I, I don't know of anybody that hasn't at one point or another had that romantic notion in their head. Talk to these agents for just a second. Three things that you could impart on them from your experience of getting to the moon that you've been to three things that you'd say that are the most important things that they need to do to reach the moon. If that's where they want to go, what are three things they've got to be able to do to reach the moon one day? If that's what they decide they want to do.
2: Yeah. I'll start start out with
0: the personal. Okay. Why why do you want to do this? Oh, that's a great question.
2: What is your motivation?
0: I had a uh, consultant, business consultant, Carrie Wallace, friend of the podcast, asked me that question yesterday. I said, Carrie, I got, so, I got one more thing to tell you, Carrie. She said, what's that? I said, I'm retiring January 1st, 2032. And then she starts asking me questions. Kind of what you just said. Yeah.
2: So I, I think understanding what your
0: motivation is before you
2: go out in that journey is really important. Is it a financial motivation? I've got a number to hit. Is it a legacy motivation? Is it about, you know, let's call it an ego or pride issue. Like I want to be known as the guy who built this really understand what motivates you will we'll make sure that you actually accomplish that, right? So if you're building something for your children or your grandchildren, you're going to need to do some different things than if you're trying to hit a number. Those are very different outcomes you're looking for. So one, understand you know, what's your motivation. Two is, uh, you know if you're building a house, you're building a building, think about the foundation, right? Do you have the foundation that's going to get you to where you want to be? You know, if you're going to build a three-story building, you need a different foundation than a 10-story building, different than a 100-story building, uh, and sort of thinking about what that looks like. And my guess is you don't have it today, right? So nobody sort of goes out, but you may need to do some work on the foundation today to sort of get yourself in a position to be able to move it um, forward into the future. And the third is if somebody had been talking to me in 2000, I would say the hardest lesson that I, I, the lesson I wish I'd learned earlier was a really around culture. Uh, that I cannot convey how much culture drives outcomes, drives the people who stay, the people that go, the best culture. Like, look, every company has a culture. There are bad cultures and there are good cultures, and then there are performance cultures. So let me uh, let me frame it not just as like if it, you got a culture, everybody's got a culture. Do you have a performance culture? And is the culture that you're creating your organization going to get you to where you want to be? The best versions of culture do things like when you're not in the room, they tell, you know, people get the, get the, hey, that's not what we do here kind of nod, right? Or the person who's not a fit pops out really early or the person who really is a fit says, I hear what y'all are doing is amazing. I want in. And, you know, and they stick around for the long, long term. Uh, we didn't make an investment in culture, uh, performance culture early enough. Uh, I wish we had, we got our values really clear, uh, vision, and mission really clearly uh, developed. We got our values really well articulated. And then we built our incentives in, in our really how we paid people align with those things. And man, you know, how you pay people really does translate into to what you get. And uh, so thinking about things like, Who's got equity? Who's got long-term performance incentives? You know, are people paid based on new versus renewal? Are people paid based on collector performance or individual performance? These are choices that drive cultural outcomes. And uh, I think you asked me for three. Did I hit all three?
0: You did. did. And (laughs) I just had had an agent in Oregon channel through me my very last question. And it's the best question of the day. Bradley, you're going to love this. This is a man- with the help of a lot of great people, including his family, especially his family, built something that was very special. When you build something very special, it requires what? A lot of hard work. A lot of hard work from a lot of people. How were you able? Because it would be very easy for me or Bradley or you or anybody else to get lost in the work when you're building something. Performance, culture, culture. Working your ass off every day to get better, to get bigger. How were you able to balance your personal life, family? Maybe you weren't married back then, but probably at some point you did, or, or, or you know, whatever. How are you able to balance that? What were some of the things that you did to balance growing and and being a part of this performance culture? And over here, balancing that with your family? Because that's 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 a tough one in this industry. Or Did you maybe you didn't? I've heard of people saying, Hey, Gary Vaynerchuk kind of talks about this. You don't, <laughs> that's what he says. So, so, Scott
2: alluded to this, which is time, yes. Okay, so I would say constantly, Time is your scarcest resource and the one you can never get back. If you want to ever see me angry, waste my time, right? If you are an owner of a business, I don't care what size you are, you never go to sleep or wake up in the morning without thinking about what's going on, right? So it is there, it's part of who you are, but your time you can make choices around. You know, I learned from my dad and from my mom that you give back to your community and part through time and through your money uh, and through your talent. Uh, That's part of the culture of my family. Uh, So we were always encouraged to volunteer and to, to be part of nonprofit organizations, boards and things like that. Um, I am happily married for over 20 years. I'm married to my college sweetheart. We have three healthy and great kids and I have great relationships with them uh, and yet managed to have a successful outcome in business. And a lot of that was being very uh, intentional around time and uh, not feeling that the business always has to come first because if the business always comes first. Everything else will come last. Mm. Uh, and so probably the, you know, I remember talking to one of my buddies who's he was in his early fifties, he was very successful in his career, which was a very different industry. And he was on sort of act two. And I said, you know, Hey, why don't you get involved in this nonprofit organization? You have a lot to bring to the table. And he said, well, you know, I'm building up my wealth now. And so when I'm, in, you know, retired, I'm going to give back to the community. That's what I'm going to do that. I, I didn't respect that. I think that part of building a life in, in, is about the relationships you have, the friends and the people you spend time with. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I don't think no matter what size business you are, you can give yourself the excuse that you don't have time for family. You don't have time for your community, for your whatever faith community that you're part of, whatever is you know part of your value system. Really, you want to look at what your values are? Take a look at how you spend your time.
0: Mm. That's a perfect answer. Billy Wagner's like flipping desks over at his office right now. He's so happy. He talks a lot about that.
1: Got Billy's new book in the mail today.
0: I'm about to order it today. Just got off the phone with him for about 40, uh, 30, 45 minutes yesterday. Intentional being intentional with your time. You know, he talked yesterday when we were talking about, you can't figure out your time management. First thing you need to do is sit down and every 30 minutes, write down what you did. Can, can
2: I say something before you, you close out on me? Cause sure, um, sure, I think there's a sense that bigger firms, bigger brokerage firms look down on smaller firms or smaller agencies. Uh-huh. I just want to say how much respect I have for any agency principal, any producer out there. I know how hard this is. It is blood, sweat and tears. It is personal. And I I remember coming into a meeting uh, where we were working on strategizing for competing for a big piece of business. And it was currently in the hands of a smaller agency. And the team around the table were sort of laughing like, oh, we're going to you know, take this account. They shouldn't have this. And I kind of pounded my fist on the table and said, do you realize that we built this business on taking accounts from firms larger than us? And if we ever get to the place where we get complacent and believe that uh, we are better than everybody else, we are going to lose. And so I just have anybody who's starting an agency, anybody's building an agency, putting themselves out there every day, you know, to win business, to get business. Like, I just want to say, like, I respect what you're doing. Uh, I want you to be successful. Um, look, I, I invested in a company called Better Agency, which is an a- agency management system, CRM for independent agents, because I believe that producers are going to be around for the long-term and Mm. that great producers are going to be successful. And I'll even go so far as to say we need successful producers out there because that's where innovation comes from. That's where problem solving comes from. Frankly, those are the people that hold the insurance companies accountable for claims, for coming up with better underwriting solutions, better policies. And so I I not only respect, but would make a plea out there. Like we need more of y'all out there. We need you to be successful and keep at it.
0: Mm. Jonathan, thank you for being here with us today. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to Bradley. And it should mean a lot to this agency crew that's listening to this right now because you have a wealth of knowledge. You've been doing it a long time. And I just want to say thank you for being a part of our podcast today. And you know, I think you came full circle with what we started with, which was, you. so you think you want to be an agency owner. And now, today, we're talking with a gentleman that played a major role in building something very, very special and did it for a long time. Guys, as I end every podcast, rewards come from action, not discussion. Get your ass out from behind that desk today. Go out into the big bad world, build relationships, figure out what your why is. Figure out what your why is. Jonathan is an example of what I told a young agent last week. And nobody ever told me this. And I'm going to impart it on everybody here today. And I wish that when I was a younger man, 50 years old now, I wish somebody had said this to me. It's called the 2020 rule. Now, Jonathan probably didn't understand what the 2020 rule was when he was doing it. So here's the 2020 rule. You spend the first 20 years of your life. All you've got to do is not get in a bunch of trouble. Get somebody pregnant or kill somebody or rape somebody or get a you know, DUI or something like that, that's going to prohibit you from moving forward. And to all of you out there, if you were able to get through the first 20, you need to go thank your mom and dad, because they probably played a big part of that. You didn't get on drugs. You're not addicted to crystal meth. So you completed your first 20. The second 20 is getting in an industry like the insurance business that can build wealth and allow yourself to learn everything you can about that industry and become uber successful in it. That's what Jonathan did. So he's gotten through his second 20. The last 20, 20-20-20 rule. Last 20 is take that wealth that allows you to go live the life that Bradley and I both agree that you deserve to live. It's called the 20 20 rule. Teach your kids that. Go make money for your family, for your wife, for your husband, for your kids' college fund, for your parents that are struggling out there. Go make money for them. Figure out what your why is and go do it. Write good business for the agencies that you represent and write good business for the companies that you represent. Bradley Flowers, I love you.
1: Thanks, man. Thanks, Jonathan.
0: Jonathan, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Guys, you are listening to the Insurance Guys podcast, and we love each and every one of you. Thank you so much for being a part of our family, and we'll see you back here. Real soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Insurance Guys podcast. If you need to know more about me or you need to get in touch with Scott, you can always reach me at theinsuranceguyonline.com or email me at scottiprotectinsurance.com. At and if you need to get in touch with Mr. Bradley Flowers, go to portalinsurance.com or email him at bradley at portalinsurance.com. Guys, we love you. We thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of our family. And we look forward to seeing you again next week on the next episode of the Insurance Guys podcast. Take care.